God's Word this morning comes from two um, passages in the New Testament, Matthew 5 and 1 Peter 2. First, Matthew five thirteen through 16. This is Jesus speaking. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, Peter heard those words when Jesus spoke them, and some... Thirty years later, when his epistles were written around 60 A.D., Peter wrote this, reflecting on what Jesus said. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is God's Word. Good, good morning. I'm Howard Brown, the pastor here at Christ Central Church. And um, I guess our women who went on a treat, y'all had a good time? The universal woo. Um, um, and Callie called me last night, I guess. It was I was waiting for you to come home, baby. She said she was coming home last night, and then she called me. Well, things are really going well. I'm staying the night. So I didn't get much sleep. Um, It's just hard to sleep without her. (laughs) Had to keep the light on all night long. I was scared. As we continue in our sermon series on loving your neighbor, last week we looked at the fact that Believers should practice public love, meaning being present in this world and sharing the love of God's mercy and justice with the world's people. Over the next two weeks, we will learn what it means to be effective witnesses of the saving, reconciling love of God for those who are worlds apart from him. If you didn't know this, Christ Central, in the wide scale of church descriptions, if there was a color wheel, we would be in the evangelical church section of the color wheel. Now, I know that saying that, I don't want to say that all the time, 
Because when you talk about evangelical Christianity, it carries with it a whole bunch of connotative junk, right? So much junk and bad press for those labeled as evangelical that the last thing you, believers here, want to be known as and unfortunately come across as is an evangelical Christian. A public, I think my faith is called to affect and change the world, its people and me, obvious in obvious transformative ways kind of Christian. Wear your faith on your sleeve, Christian. And for some of you, wear a t-shirt, Christian. And it has gotten so hard for some of you, I believe, that Christianity for you has actually become about living, trying to debunk an image that comes across as anything but godly and loving to this world in its evangelical description. Politics, cultural superiority, prejudice, usury, pride, and even criminal activities in Christendom has made actively living, expressing your faith in Jesus in this world harder. I admit that. But... The gulf between God and an unbelieving world remains the same. The unbelieving world's wising up about Christianity and its crazy churches has not, contrary to popular belief, has not made them any closer to God. And at the same time, it has not diminished the holiness of the believer. In Christ. This week, using one of the same passages from last week, there are two things we must accept to be effective at loving this world. First, we must recognize that truly your unbelieving friends, family, and acquaintances are worlds apart from the saving love of God. And secondly, Believers are set apart by God so they can love the world. Look with me at verse 14 back in our Matthew passage. And it says this, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. So Jesus tells his disciples they are the light of the world which conveys something on the backside of their being light, doesn't it? That the world of unbelievers spiritually are not in the light. They are not in the safety and protection and citizenship of the city, a city with light. Look with me at the Peter passage in verse 9. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people from his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter is saying that before believers were believers, they lived in darkness. And I explained this a little last week, that darkness means that you are not in a good place spiritually. Darkness is where injustice, suffering, insecurity, fear, pain, hatred... 
Predators, liars, lies, and demonic and spiritually dark forces live. Living in spiritual darkness, separated from God, without Jesus Christ, is by spiritual definition an unloving and unlovely place to be. And some of you might say there's definitely some love, truth, and not all evil in the world among unbelievers. They have some light. Yes, I agree. But do you know why? Because they are able to live by the relative light of the city of the hills spoken about here in Matthew. That light and hill is the light of God with it in the presence of his people. And it gives some resonant and relative light to the world and people around it. But the problem with relative light is that it creates relative truth. Outside of it, outside of the walls of God's truth and in the shadows, people can still use just enough light to do the wrong thing and be in the wrong place and just enough to be fooled that they're good enough and things are happy enough and things are right enough. Why? Because they still live in the darkness and not the light. The other night, Harrison went to let our dog Brandy out back to use the restroom. And I was upstairs. I heard the door open. I got his permission to share the story. And Clark ran upstairs, Daddy, Harrison's really upset. Something is really wrong back there. And we have some little natural area. It's not a huge backyard, but a little natural area. It's kind of dark up in there. A couple lights on the back porch, back on deck. He said, Harrison saw something. He saw something. I'm like, oh my gosh, something. And it scared the heck out of him. And, and I go down there, I'm like, what's wrong? And he's sitting there really upset. And he says, he tells me that he saw something or something. Daddy, it was bigger and taller than you. And it was fast and it ran across the back of the yard. And I think it's over there back behind those trees. He said, I saw it, a motion detector come on, it moved, and and Brandy's ears went up. Daddy, something real big went across the backyard. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, is that creature from Jeepers Creepers? Is it, is it, I'm thinking, is it Slender Man? You know, is it, what, what, who is back there? You know, your mind gets to go a little flippy, and I'm like, I don't know, son, but we ain't going back there. Like, you go to bed, turn the light off, go to bed. You said they went over to the neighbor's yard? We good. And when I got my senses together, you know, I, I, I bought my little, little headlights, you know. I have like three of those things I bought for Halloween. So we, okay. I love those headlights. I feel special. Um, and Harrison stayed on the porch with his big spotlight, and I had my headlight, and I went right into the dark place, right? I'm like, looking around like a brother about to be killed in a horror movie. I'm looking around. Why do you always go head first? Like, you don't want to lose your head. We should go foot first. Losing a toe won't be so bad, but head first. I guess you got a leg back to run, you know. And I'm walking, and I'm pulling my dog. Go first. I'm kicking her. Go out there. You go. And it's so dark. And then I heard this noise. I'm like, it's an owl. It's an owl. And then Harris was like, Daddy, it is an owl. Look over there. And it was this big, big, tall, big, fat, been eating all the rabbits, 
owl sitting out there, and when it crossed the back of the yard, its wingspan was so big, and it moved so quickly and silently, it looked like something tall walking across the backyard. Without light, or just a little light, it's easy to call what isn't good, good. It's easy to call what's good, evil. It's easy to imagine that things are worse than they are or not so bad. The love of God is the light, and the light is Christ. You see, the light is more than a light itself. It's the relationship that God has with his people or people who were in the darkness and afraid of what they thought they saw. And God sent his son as the light to light the darkness and alleviate our fears. Those who don't know him, your neighbors, your friends, your family, live in spiritual darkness. But not only that, spiritual distastefulness. Look at verse 13 in our Matthew passage again when it talks about salt. You're the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And then in our Peter passage in verse 10, it says this. Once you were not a people. But now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And I'm concentrating on the people of God portion of that. Jesus, as he speaks to his disciples, tells them they're the salt of the earth, implying that the world's people, those who don't follow him, Jesus, live a distasteful, rejected, throw up, throw away, rotting and void of purpose, empty spiritual life. Our Peter passage tells us that before believers came to Jesus, they were not a people. One of the worst things, especially this letter going to a largely Jewish congregation, the worst thing they could ever hear is that you were not a people. That you were nothing. You were devoid of God's spiritual purpose. It means that Without Christ, they have no good, trusted heritage. It means that you came from bad and are headed for worse. If you're not Jesus's, we are not Jesus's. We're not holy. We are not his choice people. We are not all God's children in that specific way. We are not God's possession. We don't know and can't know the love of God in Christ because we are not possessed in our heart by the love of God. And though we may all be God's creation as human beings, being a creation of a holy God and being declared holy are worlds apart. Apart from God, there is no appetite or natural desire for the God of the Bible. 
You see, God has seasoned his spiritual dishes with his personality, and the unbeliever just doesn't like or can't taste what God puts in there. Maybe it's the death of the death of Jesus ingredient. Maybe it's the resurrection seasoning. Maybe it's the need for the Bible thing. Maybe it's the only way Jesus thing. Maybe it's, oh, I can't sleep around, or, or the sexuality limitations. Maybe it's the church thing. Maybe it's the worship thing. Maybe it's that we are sinners thing. Whatever the reason or God-given ingredient, bottom line, because unbelievers don't like the flavor of the whole gospel, the God of the gospel does not like their flavor. Because the plan of salvation God is serving is not good according to them. And they are not good with God. They're worlds apart from the love of God. I know y'all feel real uncomfortable hearing this. It's tough to hear. We want to forget it. We don't want it to be true. We want to believe that somehow, some way, everybody is somehow going to fall in love with God on their own. That somehow the light that people have, which is really living in the shadows of the true light, is going to make them happy enough for us not to be worried about them. The Bible has a sobering story of what it means to live in darkness. It means you are worlds. That means you can't get there on your own. You are worlds apart from a loving, holy relationship, a right relationship, a right standing with the God of the Bible. And if you're a believer, you know what you believe? That that is not good. Right? That that's not good. That folk all around us are in this situation or in this state. That is not good. You shouldn't settle in that. That shouldn't be a good story for you to hear and accept and laugh about and live around like it doesn't matter. So where are you in all of this? What's the extent of your love, right? What, where does love for an unbelieving friend, family, and acquaintance begin? Not only knowing and accepting where they are, being worlds apart from the love of God, but knowing where and who, most importantly, knowing where and who you are as one's called to love them. You see, Jesus, when Jesus called his new disciples the salt of the earth and alive of the world, light to be put on the stand and salt to be used, he was letting them know, you are different. You are called and chosen and set apart for God and his holy purposes. And then the Peter passage makes that clear by saying this in verse 9. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Mercy. What does it mean to be set apart? 
It means this. When you became a believer, you believers, you became a whole different type of person on the earth. earth. That's the reference to a race of people, a nation of people. You were completely transformed into a new creation with a new beginning and a new end. Not only that, as a priesthood, you are committed. And when I say committed, I'm talking about like being committed to the hospital committed. Or you were drafted by God. You are now someone who was chosen to do the works of God, who live, who live as a representative of God. And then Peter describes believers as being a nation and a people, pulling on the race distinction. Those who are believers, get this, are in a whole other spiritual country and zip code. They have a whole different spiritual citizenship. They have their own set of laws and patriotism within the laws of this world. And God is their heavenly father. They are God people. They are God's people. They are God's possession. They are possessed by God's presence on the earth. And these believers are simply walking around. You believers, right? In the temporary political, physical, races and nations and people groups of the world. But the Bible describes them as sojourners and exiles, which means like the aliens in men in black. You believers are chilling and hanging out like the unlikely others among us worldly people. In fact, verse 11 says sojourners in in, in, in exiles, it actually means an alien. We are legal, meaning we have the right to live in regular old human skin, in regular old human constructs, in regular old human countries, but you believers are alien to this world's end result and ultimate reason for being. But in your human suit and skin, in your temporary, under, and in the cover of this world, there is something else that makes you believers different than and in this world. You are set apart because of these words Peter uses in these verses. Chosen, royal, holy, called out of darkness, gods, and recipients of mercy. Do you know what that means? It means that God chose believers. They didn't choose him to be royal, which meant as royal, he paid for them to be adopted into his royal family when they were not wanted by anyone else and born outside of his holy family. Believers are called, meaning if God didn't draw them or call them, they would not have come. They didn't walk into the light. God went out as the light and found them in their darkness and brought them into the safety of the city of light, into the kingdom. Believers were worthy of being spit out of God's mouth. They were distasteful in and of themselves, deserving to be thrown out of God's presence, worthy to be crushed and condemned and judged. But God decided to give them mercy and not what they deserved. Believers were casualties of war. According to verse 11, but God gave them a safe place to live this life apart from the stuff in the dark that would pray and eat and mow them down. But I also want you to know, believers, you're holy. Now, before you make yourself hypocrites (laughs) instead of holy, you Christians, 
holy does not mean you are self-righteous. That you are holier than thou. That you are better. That you were better or more brilliant and morally superior. But holy does mean morally, I looked up this word, morally blameless. It means sanctified. It means a saint, one who is set apart. Get this, not by their behavior primarily, but by God's actions to them first and then through them. Being holy means that a holy God made you holy by the work of Jesus, that you were a sinner and Jesus lived and died and gave you a right standing. On the cross, there was a transfer, a price paid, right? Jesus became unholy with your sins and you believers by faith in him became gods, bought by God, adopted by the price Jesus paid. It was his actions of love and grace that made the unholy you holy. The fact that God did that, chose to do that by his own will, is what made you believe and thus makes you believers. God saw you. He picked your sorry, ragged, sinful, unknown, ignorant, war-torn, damaged self and brought you into the light out of the dark and out of hatred and out of despair and into his loving presence, promise, and relationship. Do you remember this, you believers? Do you actually believe this? You are therefore not like this unbelieving, sinful world. Their story is not your story anymore. Don't you believe that the gospel is your testimony and your truth in this world? Here is the good news that may sound bad to some of you. Once again, you are different and chosen from the world of darkness and unbelief. And it is amazing to me. I amaze myself too. How much we work to prove to others that we are just like them. We spend most of our times when I talk to people and they find out I'm a Christian and they're not or I'm a pastor. Oh my goodness, I think I have to spend an hour to explain to them how much like them I am. which is half of the gospel, but we are so afraid of them knowing that we actually believe we're holy. That somehow when they look at our lives that we believe we're just passing through, that we are God's possession, that you are not in the same world spiritually as they are. Let me ask you, believers, something. Do you love what God has done for you still? Let, let me tell you the truth. This passage in Peter is so believers could be impressed by God. And what God had done for them. And this text should not be scary for you, but make an impression of identity that you are happy and joyful about. See, being holy is not about believers being impressed with themselves or their goodness or their goody-two-shoes or moral behavior, but totally impressed on and with, with, with God's goodness and love. Believers, therefore, bear the impression of God on their faces, in their actions, in their responses to issues. They are not only set apart, but live the part for the unbelieving world to see and experience God's love.
Look how Peter says it in verse 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you, sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And then look at our last passage in Matthew again. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Both passages end basically the same way. And it teaches us this. How and why and that you live as holy, as obedient to God, it matters. Your lifestyle matters. When it comes to people living in darkness and distaste coming to God. Peter says, keep your conduct honorable around the Gentiles. Gentiles being another Jewish cold word for unbeliever. Honorable to what though? Honorable to the will of God, right? It means to live in ways that are not evil and sinful and in the dark. It means abstaining from what used to be your behavior when you believers were not gods. All right. It means don't live like the world. Live like you belong and were chosen by God's grace, by faith through the work of Jesus alone to be God's people. You know, we don't do a lot of sermons on living holy. They don't go over very well. Because <laughs> we want to be cool, right? Let me put some feet on this. So often believers spend most of their energy trying to show the world that they cuss too. They watch the same TV shows. We laugh at the same jokes. We work as furiously and crazily as hard as you do. We drink too. We are in conflict with our spouses too and they get on our nerves too. We think that girl or guy over there is hot too. We're outwardly beautiful too. They are buff too. We know how to club too. Or we spend all of our time reminiscing over how we used to do the same things, it becomes a memory fest that draws you closer to those around you. And I understand. Letting the world, people know around you that, 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 you know, that you're not there yet, you're not some moral giant, but maybe we are truly communicating when things are said and done that they are no different than you and you are no different than they are. The gospel says otherwise. You're gods. You're different if you're a believer. And thus you do things differently and for different reasons. I mean, think about it. How does someone who was chosen, adopted, loved on, given a giant inheritance, who was saved from a war-torn life, who was in darkness and hatred, act toward the person who saved them, chose them, died for them, adopted them, and loved them? How do they act and respond? They worship them! 
they glorify them. Stop despising your salvation and the love of God and Christ toward you. There should be great celebration and joy and happiness in doing what God wants. In living holy and saying no to sin and not watching certain things that are bad that are ungodly in not participating in certain conversations that are ungodly. That's okay too. Believers, it is right to love and want the light over the darkness in the course of a day and in your life. Your repentance and humility and brokenness and obedience along with your recreations and your schedules and your commitments should say what? Thank you, God. I praise you, God. You're in my life, Lord. I was nothing without you. I would be lost without you. I I couldn't work my way to even get halfway good enough for you to even look my way, and you sent Jesus to die for me. Thank you, Lord. Let me do a little dance. Let me do a little activity that shows that I am grateful for what you've done. And when believers shake it all out and glow for God, the glory he receives from us becomes a beacon in the darkness and an urging in the silence for those who were once lost like you to come. How do you love your neighbor who is worlds apart from God? As one set apart, lived apart, as one saved by his loving grace. I was not always a Clemson fan. Surprise. I know y'all thought I was born orange. Wasn't always orange. You would think I grew up with the orange blood that now flows in my veins. Not true. I thought Clemson fans were stupid and crazy and corny. We had a family in my neighborhood with Clemson grass, and I remember seeing Clemson light switch covers. A Clemson spare tire cover for their Jeep. And stickers and magnets and flags and orange clothing. Nobody wears, or like that lady, decorates their house with orange. And tigers are not the animal of choice to feature on walls and paintings. Maybe a duck for good southeastern people. But not tigers. I hadn't seen a tiger much walking through the woods of South Carolina. It wasn't until I went up there after scholarship sealed my fate to become a Clemson student. I didn't want to go to that school. I was accepted Ivy League schools. I wasn't going up there. But a scholarship sealed my fate. I was chosen. I remember when it started. Driving from Charleston for the first time with my daddy up there. And on the road, orange paws painted on the interstate. And I was like, "Uh uh-oh. 
Then a big sign, you are entering tiger country. I was like, hmm, wait a minute. These crazy, then I went to my first football game, right? These crazy orange-clad, loud, loud hill-running people were all around me. I never seen such a sea of ridiculously dressed folk. And I was in a band, and the field was shaking with their love of their team, their sold-out, committed praise and outward orange holiness, singing and dancing and cheers, and I was drawn. And everything I remember was so committed. Everything. The signage, the food, the color of the field, the pants, the shirts, the beauty and arrangement and message of things. It, when you were at Clemson, you know where you are. You are at Clemson. Even going to class, it was the first time I ever saw students wore shirts and shorts and hats with their own school name on it. Like they would forget. Oh, yeah. You know, afraid they would forget or be less of a student. It was too much to resist. Resist Orange are cool. Tigers, normal, natural scenery. And Saturdays were the Sabbath, right? I was a fan because of the glory. The glory. Look at our last verse in Peter again. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Do you know what the word glory means in part? Heavy. Heavy like heavy enough to create a gravitational pull kind of thing. As fans of what Jesus do out of love for God, just like I experienced at that first football game. I was not drawn in by them being a chair for this or, or, or since I was from Charleston, you know, singing the calls of Charleston songs or, or singing my high school fight song, but being holy about their team and their hope and their glory. When we live the part and glorify God as holy in our lives, when we worship God, when he is glorified, when we obey him, when we are thankful for him, when we are grateful for him, when we give him praise, he uses it. His great weighty salvation that we love to draw people and make them stick to him. He uses our love for him, a love that is worlds apart. The world looks at it and thinks it's crazy. They look at us and say, there is no way we are on earth. Why are you talking about heaven? What do you mean forgiveness? What do you mean repentance? What do you mean you sin, but you're still a saint? What do you mean that you're holy? What is all this craziness? Why are you giving up your mornings on Sunday? It's a nice day outside. I can't feel it. I can't even stomach what you're talking about. He uses your glorifying of God, your worship. You know, I thought it was interesting how, how Peter calls us a royal priesthood, you know? And a priest was the one who led the worship service, right? It is almost like in our daily lives, everything we do, everything we say, every way we go and why we go there should be like these mini worship services, right? 
where what we do is focus on the truth of God's love and glory and gospel for us. And when we worship God in all we do, it creates a gravity, a, a glory, a, a light, and a salt that God uses to draw those who are worlds apart to him. It is how his love through believers reaches those who are worlds apart. Love for him, expressed active love and worship of him, is love for a lost and dying world. Let us pray.